Good afternoon, everyone. For the past three weeks or, or so, I've been um, talking to you about the doctrine of sanctification. Doctrine of sanctification is, uh, in the simplest way to put it, it's the ongoing, the ongoing, can you hear me? Okay. Okay. It's the ongoing process by which the Christian is made more like Jesus. Oftentimes, there is a confusion for a lot of uh, people. For those who fail to understand the differences between justification and sanctification, there are, um, there's confusion that arises. And out of that, because of the confusion, then there's a lot of um, uh, well, I don't know, just a lot of misunderstanding of who they are in Christ. So, um, quite simply, sanctification is the ongoing process by which God, in the power of, this whole, in the power of the Holy Spirit, applies the work of Christ's uh, redemption into our lives on an ongoing basis, on an ongoing basis. The physical reminder of that for the church as a corporate body is the Lord's Supper. So every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we confess our sins and we are reminded of Christ's suffering on our place, in our place, uh, in order to pay the penalty and that our righteousness is based upon his merit of his sacrifice on the cross. The uh, church where... I was, I was fellowshipping up until a few weeks ago. Um, we take the Lord's Supper every week. Um, and it's the way that it's done, it's number one, it's only for believers. But um, as long as we are believers, it's open to everyone to come in and participate. Um, but there's also a time of self-reflection, confession, repentance, and meditation before partaking in the Lord's Supper. And it's a, it's, it's, I find that to be such a powerful illustration. In fact, that's the way that the Bible designed it. Um, I don't agree with churches that take the Lord's Supper once a year or twice a year or whatever the case may be. It's meant to be a constant perpetual reminder of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Um, now, that's sanctification. Um, today, we're going to enter into a different uh, theological topic, okay, doctrinal topic. Doctrinally speaking, chapter 8 deals with the doctrine of glorification. Doctrine of glorification. Now, it's, it's going to be a little bit awkward. I'm not going to go too much into this. I, I'm, not, I'm only going to mention it in passing. Glorification happens at the moment that we cease to live in this world and we are transposed into uh, eternity in the presence of Christ. We are glorified. Part of sanctification, the purpose of sanctification is that it leads into glorification. But the thing is, there's also, that's the practical aspect, but the positional aspect is that when Jesus Christ saved us, by his death and uh, his resurrection, 
that aspect of salvation is justification, sanctification, glorification, and it's already been accomplished by cross. So that's positionally speaking. In our position, in our standing with God, we are glorified already. So that's uh, one of the things that, that, that we need to think through is how many times as Christians, how often do we come to Christ with a sense of self-condemnation, a sense of guilt, and a sense of overwhelming shame. I've sinned, I've sinned, I've sinned. And, and that sense of, of shame and that sense of guilt just constantly just wears down on us. And uh, one of the things that, that can, one of the, the biggest hindrances upon a Christian's growth is a perpetual sense of self-condemnation. We can always focus on how imperfect we are, how sinful we are. We can always focus on how much we have fallen short of the glory of God. And all those things are true. And we have to have a correct understanding of sin. But the problem is when we focus so much on that self-condemnation, what we're not doing is we are not focusing on the all-sufficient power and the merit of Christ. Right? But even more importantly than that, what we're doing is we are completely missing out on the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Because for every Christian, the Bible is so clear that in our salvation, God is involved. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that sense of overwhelming guilt, what it does is it pushes the Holy Spirit out of the life and the lifestyle of the Christian. And I think that, that for many of us, maybe it's a, um, I'm just speculating here, but I think there's a, a, a misconception of who the Holy Spirit is. I think that there's a concept of, of maybe a false concept of thinking that the Holy Spirit is just a thing, is some ethereal thing. You know, and when you really love God, then, then you feel it, the thing, the Holy Spirit. But the truth is the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the, whole, the Holy Trinity. And so for many of us as Christians, and I think for many evangelicals, we don't give the Holy Spirit enough credit in our lives. The Apostle Paul is going to correct that notion. And this entire chapter is going to turn that notion upside down. So, what is the role, the person of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian? As I mentioned before, this aspect of self-condemnation, you know, when you think about what self-condemnation is, in a Christian's life, it's kind of like, you know, can you imagine a bird wakes up in the morning from its nest, wakes up and goes, wait, how do I fly again? How do I get down from this tree down to the ground? Have I forgotten how to flap my wings? So, Paul begins Romans chapter 8 with what I believe 
and what many theologians refer to as the Apostle Paul's magnum opus. Verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's really, really important because every word in the Bible, all scripture, okay, all scripture is God-breathed. And it's really important because um, sometimes we, we, the English translations just don't do justice. When it says all scripture is God-breathed, literally in the Greek, uh, it can mean each and every word of scripture is breathed out by God. One of the things that the Apostle Paul does is he's a He's a literary grammatical master. Uh, and one of the things that he does so often, so well in his, in his writings is that he uses conjunctions in the most effective ways. In the English, we tend to pass over, gloss over conjunctions quite well, quite easily. But in the Greek, therefore is the first word. Therefore, what is therefore? Therefore, is a conjunction that links the previous statements with what's coming up, right? But in this passage, it's not talking about Im immediately preceding, and the immediately preceding is important, remember? Remember how, how he's ended chapter 6 on sanctification? Oh, what a wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this bondage of death. The frustration, the angst of the struggle of this life as a Christian, here I am. I want to please God. I want to do what's right. I want to do what's good, but I can't. I don't. So who will deliver me? And he says, wretched man that I am. I am evil. I am destroyed because in myself, I don't have the abilities. I can't control my mind. I can't control my heart. I can't control my hands. I can't control my feet. My willpower is not strong enough. And as someone said, the problem is not willpower, the problem is won't power, is the won't power. So when sin is knocking at our door, I don't want to do it, but I do it. Who will deliver me? And his answer is a resounding thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how he's ended chapter 6. Again and again, he takes us back to Christ. Christ is the beginning and Christ is the end. From beginning to end, it's always been Christ and everything in the middle is encapsulated by Christ and his working. But for the Apostle Paul, it's not just a matter of saying that, well, since, since you know, uh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, what he's saying is from the very beginning of his argument in Romans chapter 1. From Romans chapter 1, we are justified freely, right? We are saved by the works of Christ's justification. We are declared righteous by Christ. Verse 18, for the wrath of God remains on those as being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men. That's true, right? That's a universal principle. Whether you're a man or a woman or a child or, or, or an adult, it doesn't matter. Every one of us falls under this wrath of God. Every one of us is, sinner. There's, is a sinner. There's no difference for all have sinned. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your sexual orientation. It doesn't matter whether, whether you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter whether you're a child or anything. Every single one of us 
is in danger of the wrath of God because we have all sinned and there is no difference. We are all unrighteous. We are all wicked. We all deserve the judgment of God. So when he says, verse 18, therefore, what he's doing is he's bringing everything together to say that this is why, this is why, thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift of God is Christ. So there is no, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In this passage, in verses well, 1 through 11, we'll see that there's three things that I uh, want us to take note of. First of all, is that in verses 1 through 3, no condemnation because he's talking about our standing with God, right? Our positional relationship with God. He brings us back to that over and over and over again, okay? Because he doesn't want us to forget who we are in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law, uh, set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So in other words, because Jesus Christ was condemned in our place, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What does it mean that there is no condemnation? Let me, let me just finish this. So verses 4 through, um, four through 8 then. In verses 4 through 8, he talks about our former mode of life, our former mode of, of life. In verses 9 through 11, he's talks about, he talks about our present and ongoing mode of life. Okay. Our former mode of life is living in the flesh. Our present and ongoing mode of life is living in the spirit. So let me get back to, uh, to this idea of there is no condemnation. Why is there no condemnation? Because in chapter uh, 1, verses 18 to 23, if you'll go back there with me, turn in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23 said, says, for the wrath of God is revealed from he heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
So the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. What is the wrath of God? Is this, is this wrath of God kind of God's just emotional anger toward sinners, emotional anger toward, uh, toward unrighteousness, toward bad things that people do? Oftentimes, there's a misconception among unbelievers that God is kind of like this old gray-haired man who sits up in heaven just looking down on people with his arms crossed and that crossity, you know, crotchety old look on his face. Taking stock of everything that people do wrong and ready to wag their fing his finger at them. Look at him. Write it down in the book. As if he's such a you know, capricious old man. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. It's so important to understand that this wrath comes from heaven because this, uh, the standard of righteousness, the standard of goodness, and the standard of morality doesn't come from you and I. Correct? It comes from God. It's a part of his nature because he is a holy God, because he is a righteous God. His wrath is a righteous wrath. It is a holy wrath, and it is a just wrath. And the basis of all of that is his nature. First of all, we see that mankind, because of our sin, we do not acknowledge God. We do not acknowledge the truth of God. And what we've done is that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We don't want to accept the fact that he is holy. We don't want to accept the fact that he is righteous. We don't want to accept the fact that he is just. We just want to create some, some very, you know, palatable idea, a conception of God that's easier for us to accept and digest. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. It's not, Matt, what do you think of God? Do you think God's going to be a good God? Or do you think, you know, he's an old man? Or do you think, what do you think he is? Or do you think God is a woman? What do you think? Well, I think God is is this, or I think God is that. It doesn't matter what your concepts are. It doesn't matter what our thoughts, it doesn't matter what our emotions, how we feel about God. But so many of us, we tend to judge our Christian lives that way. I feel like I'm so close to God, or I feel like I'm so far away from God. And so based on our feelings, we tend to determine whether or not we're good Christians or whether we're bad Christians, whether we're being faithful or whether we're being unfaithful. What Paul is doing is he's stripping away all those false layers, and he's re been revealing God for who he truly is. The first thing to happen in a Christian's life is that in order to become saved, or when God makes himself known to us. First thing that happens is that we have to see God for who he truly is. Not for what we would like him to be, but for who he is. And until we, we are willing to come to grasp of the truth of God, nothing in our lives can ever change. So, they do not acknowledge the truth of God. And he goes on to say that because of this, therefore all men are, or all men stand without excuse. All men stand without excuse. Is God just 
for judging sinners? Is God just for judging sinners? I hope you say yes, right? But, you know, don't we just... Haven't you seen so many Christians living their lives as if there's never a judgment, that judgment will never happen? In fact, God would be unjust for not judging sinners. Right? If God is a righteous judge, a righteous judge looks at sin and says, hmm, eh, I'll just let that one go. Is he going to be a, a just uh, judge? I watched a uh, show on YouTube. Um, I think it's called Providence Traffic Court. You guys know that I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. Or Warwick, Rhode Island, which is, no, Johnston, Rhode Island. Warwick, Rhode Island first, and then moved to Johnston, Rhode Island. Johnston is right next to Providence. Um, there's a judge in Providence um, who uh, sits on the bench of, um, of a traffic court. And what happens is every time someone comes up and says, okay, you know what, you, you, you ran a red light here. You know, why did you run a red light? Well, judge, it, it was yellow when I crossed and... and, uh, and and so on, and, and, he, and the judge says, well, you know what, uh, um, the rule is that, uh, that you know, you, if, you're, if you're in the intersection within two-tenths two of a second, then, then, you know, you're okay. But, you know, you were with three-tenths of a second in the intersection, so yeah, this time I'm going to let you go, okay? So, yeah, you're clear, you're good to go. Um, and this person violates this law. And then the, and the judge says, well, why did you do that? You know, you have, you have 10 traffic, you know, 10 parking violations on this street. Well, uh, judge, I'm sorry, but, you know, I, I, I drop off my kid here at school every day. And then, and, 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 you know, every time I come to drop off my kid, you know, and the, 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 the parking attendant, you know, comes and writes a ticket. And I'm just in there for like two minutes and I come out and, and there's a ticket on my windshield. You know, okay, okay, I'm going to let you go. Everybody loves this guy, you know. He loves this guy because he doesn't—he doesn't enforce any tickets. The only time I've ever seen him enforce tickets and enforce penalties is when somebody comes in in there into his court with an attitude, and he just goes, "Okay, I'm going to double the fine." <laughs> oh, you're going to give me more attitude? Okay, I'm—I'm—I'm—I'm going to—you know—I'm going to lock up your car, impound your car. Okay, give me more. What else do you want, huh? You know, as, as much as we would love to have those kinds of judges who are just so kind that they're hard, you know, oh, I'm, sure, I'm sure you didn't really mean to violate the law, so you know, I'm just going to let you go. To be a truly just judge, a truly just judge has to uphold the law, right? We talked about the law. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is righteous. All those things. God has established his own laws. And so for God to violate his own laws would be unjust. A truly just judge would enforce the laws. And it would be unjust for God to violate or allow anyone to violate his laws. Well, God doesn't allow excuses. None of us can stand at the judgment seat of God and say, I didn't know, judge. 
Come on, I missed, I missed it by one-tenth of a second. There's no excuse. Therefore, all men are without excuse because God is a holy, righteous, and a just God. See, in every aspect, what the Apostle Paul does is says, the judgment of God, it's your fault. The condemnation, it's your fault. Justice falling upon us, it's our fault. They did not glorify him as God. Have you ever seen a thankless child? Now, I work in a grocery store. You know, one of the co most common things you hear in a grocery store? Children, you know, sitting in their little grocery carts and, um, and you know, ah, ah, gimme, 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 gimme. And mama says, no. Ah, gimme, gimme, ah! Throwing a holy tantrum, an uh, unholy tantrum. <laughs> because they're not getting what they want. And that's what, that's what we're, we're like. We're just thankless. The truth is that they failed to give thanks to God because they, they refused to acknowledge the fact that God has been so gracious. Do you know that God is gracious to everyone? God is gracious to everything. All creatures on this earth receive the grace of God. The animals... And every human being receives the grace of God. You know, if you're not starving to death, if you have shelter over your head, if you have clothes on your back, everything that we have is an act of God's grace. And the very air that, breathe, that we breathe is an act of God's grace. The sun that shines to give us energy and life it's an act of God's grace. All these things are an act of God's grace. The thing is, unbelieving people of this world, they don't acknowledge any of that. See, and the fact of the matter is, truth is, it's a great uh, uh, insult to God when we wake up in the morning and their son, you know, he's given the son for life and health and and energy, and vibrance, and we wake up in the morning, ah, it's another stupid hot day. Oh, why is it so cold? We complain against God. We complain against the one who gives us everything. These are all his general acts of grace. And the, and, and the unbelieving world will never wake up and realize, oh, dang it, I've been so stupid. Oh, why do I complain about the sun when God is so good and so gracious? I should bow my knee right now and repent of my unbelief. That will never happen. Not unless the Holy Spirit says, you're a wicked, evil, unregenerate sinner and you need to repent. See, we don't thank God. Now, there's a special, special grace that God gives. And the special grace that God gives is out of all the sinners of the world, out of all the evil people of the world who get to experience, who get to experience his grace, 
there are some people who get to experience his grace in a special way. First, they experience his grace through conversion. Through conversion. Conversion is when the Holy Spirit comes upon a sinner and, and, and awakens, quickens the soul so that the sinner realizes, whoa, what am I doing? I'm such a sinner. And then second aspect of grace is the revelation of Christ, right? So whether it's through believers or whether it's through uh, reading a book or whether it's reading the Bible or whether it's through reading some pamphlet or literature, they realize, I need Jesus Christ in my life. There's another aspect of special grace. And then another aspect of special grace is repentance, where God gives that, unregener um, that regenerated sinner, God gives him the, the, the need for repentance. And he begins to call out to God, and he begins to pray maybe for the first time in his life. God, I need you. God, forgive me. God, uh, save me from my sin. And then, another aspect of God's grace, special aspect of God's grace, God regenerates the heart. God regenerates the person and redeems them, not only to receive eternal life in heaven, but eternal life in heaven really comes down to a special relationship with Jesus Christ. That special relationship with Jesus Christ means that, number one, we are sons of God. Number two, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. In many respects, Christ, in our relationship to Christ, we are brothers with Christ through adoption. That's special grace. So, how do you explain a Christian who experiences the special grace of God and yet lives such a thankless life? Two things go hand in hand, being thankful and glorifying God. We cannot glorify God without being thankful to the Lord. We cannot say that we are giving glory to him when we're living a thankless life. But they fail to thank God, they fail to glorify God, and then they substituted the true and living God for idols. The true and living God for idols. Instead of thanking God for the sun, the life, and everything else, the water, what do they do? Primitive man looks at the water and says, the water God gives life. And they give names. It's Poseidon. Right? Primitive man recognizes the sun and turns the sun into a god and worships be before the sun. The primitive man, you know, bows down to the mountain. And so we acknowledge, rather than acknowledging the truth of God, what we do is we substitute the things that come from God and turn them into God. And we give glory to the things that are made rather than the maker. The brilliant scientist Sir Isaac Newton said that he could take his telescope and look millions and millions of miles into space. Then he added, 
But when I lay it aside, I go into my room, I shut the door, and I get down on my knees in earnest prayer. I see more of heaven and feel closer to the Lord than if I were assisted by all the telescopes on the earth. This is what grace is. God gives access. Not just access, but access through relationship with him. There is no condemnation. Not just because we just have a, you know, something, a switch has changed, you know, come on and, oh, I'm a bad person, now I'm a good person in Christ. No, we can't do it. And so in verse 2, the Holy Spirit is the one who sets us free. The Holy Spirit sets us free. Verse 2, he says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law, set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The spirit here is not just uh, uh, the human spirit as in body, soul, and spirit. The spirit here is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the life-giving spirit. The Holy Spirit is the life-giving spirit. There are many ways that uh, in this chapter alone, there are so many ways, and I'm going to try to just quickly go through these what you can do on your own is that you can go home or, or after this time, you can look at this chapter and circle or underline all the times or you can number all the times that you see the Spirit in this passage and see how the Spirit, examine how the Spirit works in your life, in my life, in our lives through the revelation of God's truth. But in verse 2, he is the law of the Spirit of life. Okay? So the law of the Spirit of life and um that's set apart against a law of, this, of sin and death. Uh, in verse 3, God did what the law could not do. In verse 4, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We walk, in other words, that's all, all encompassing of our lifestyle in Christ, living the life in Christ. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the desires of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Look at the contrast. How do you distinguish a true believer, a Christ follower, from an unbeliever? What are they following? What is their desire? What is their way of thinking? Are they thinking upon the things uh, or that of the Holy Spirit? Or are they following the ways of their sinful nature. Um, verse 6, to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Okay? Set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. It's interesting how there's, even though it seems like it's just a... Uh, 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 indicative statement here and so much of uh, in so much of Paul's other writings the idea of setting our mind on the spirit is is actually written as a directive as a command we can see this in Colossians chapter 3 one of the most important 
uh, passages in the Bible. Colossians chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, okay? Another way of saying that is since then, okay? Uh, the, it, it should be read, it should be translated, since then you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Another translation says, set your minds on the things that are above and set your hearts on the things that are above. That's written as a command, as a directive. The way to walk in the Spirit is that every day, every moment, we are setting our hearts and our minds on Christ. And the Holy Spirit applies that into our lives. So let me ask you something. At this point, we have to ask ourselves, are we intentional about that? Are we intentional about that? I don't know what that'll be for you, okay? The application of these principles are something that only you can determine as a follower of Jesus. But one thing that is so clear is that these are not options for believers. They're not options for believers. Okay, going on then. Um, I believe that I'm on the seventh point. We are not in the flesh, but we are in the spirit. Okay, we are not in the flesh, but we are in the spirit. And uh, verse 9, if the spirit of God dwells in you. And again, the point is, if you're a believer, if you're a believer, then we are not in the flesh. Uh, the spirit of life is because of right. The spirit is life because of righteousness. And again, that righteousness is the righteousness that is imputed on us um, by Christ. The spirit of Him who raised Jesus is the one who is dwelling in us. And uh, verse eleven, through His Spirit who dwells in us, it's the Holy Spirit. By uh, verse thirteen, by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. By the Spirit. Now that conjunction. A preposition, right? How important is that? By the Spirit, put to, de put to death the deeds of the flesh. Not by our human wills, not by our best intentions, but by the Spirit. Whom? The Spirit of God. Okay. Um, led by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Okay, so those who are not led by the Spirit, who are they? Sons of the devil. But those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Verse 15, we have received the Spirit of, of adoption. The Spirit of adoption. And next week, I'm going to cover that notion, that idea of uh, the Spirit of adoption. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, the, verse 16, the Spirit bears witness with our spirits. He affirms or he confirms that we belong to Christ, that we belong to God. Verse 23, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Verse 27, God knows the mind of the Spirit. Verse 27, again, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit intercedes for the saints. 
in accordance with the will of God. Leon Morris says, through this whole chapter runs the thought that believers are not left to live the Christian life on their own strength. The Holy Spirit dwells in them and enables them to live in accordance with all that the Holy Spirit means, of which Paul writes. This is the entire purpose of this chapter. In order to bring glory to Christ, to bring glory to God, the Father, we live our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. Every day and every moment, That's the solution. So there are two lives and two minds. Those who live according to the flesh, those who live according to the spirit. Two roads, polar opposites. Which path do you walk? Which path will we choose to walk? There is no condemnation because the spirit of life dwells in us. The spirit of life appropriates, applies the work of Christ in our lives. As we have already seen that uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. But that wrath of God what was the greatest revelation of the wrath of God? The cross. God poured out his wrath upon Christ, upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are the evil ones. We are the wicked ones. We are the sinners. It was you, me. I'm the one who deserved to be up there on the cross. But Jesus took my place. Jesus suffered that punishment. Jesus suffered that condemnation. John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I know that this verse has become one of those kind of like Sunday school cute little verses that, you know, we try to teach all of our children. And, you know, we oh, come on, come on, let's hear John 3, 16. For God's in the world. You know, and it's, it's supposed to be cute, and, and it seems so nice, and, and we become so accustomed, so complacent with this verse. But this is the gospel. And, you know, every single time that we should read this, we read this verse, it should strike something deep in our hearts, that God so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but guess what? God did send his son into the world to condemn his son. Correct? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but God sent his son into the world to condemn his son. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name 
of the only Son of God. God's one and only choice. God's one and only solution for sin. And the condemnation of our sin either remains on us or it remains on Christ. Either I will bear the condemnation for my own sin because of my unbelief, because of my stubborn unrepentance, or Christ bore the condemnation of God. Psalm 34, 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the great gift of God. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. And if we take our refuge in him, Jesus Christ is our refuge. Jesus Christ is our safe haven. Matthew chapter 12, verse 37, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What are those words? The words of belief or disbelief? One of two choices. Life in the flesh, life in the spirit. Life in the flesh is a way of condemnation. Righteous, holy, just condemnation. The way of the spirit is Jesus Christ condemned for us. And we can say with the Apostle Paul, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. Because in Christ, the law of sin and death has been dealt with. And now the law of the Spirit abides in me. And we end with verses 9 through 11, simply as as this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Two beautiful words, however and but. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Is that true of you? If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Here's another promise, guys. Isn't it astounding? Apostle Paul chooses to end this passage with a promise. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay. Let's backtrack to how I started this. Do you ever get overwhelmed with a a sense of self-condemnation? Do you ever get so frustrated with yourself? Why am I not changing? Why am I not growing? Do you ever get overwhelmed 
with guilt and shame. Here is your solution. There is no condemnation. There never will be condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It can't happen. Can't. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ, who raised Christ, Christ from the dead, who gave life to dead Jesus, whose body was in the grave, decomposing for three days, not in a refrigerated uh, uh, environment, but, but in a, ro a rotted, decomposing corpse, was raised to life. Not only for the purpose of raising him to physical life, but for the purpose of being able to give life to every one of us. And this is the promise. This is our promise. This is our life. And if we concentrate, if we live according, if we walk according to this life, if we walk according to the power of the Holy Spirit, live in the life of the Holy Spirit, rather than living our lives in the flesh. You know, it's one thing to say, I don't want to sin, I don't want to sin, I don't want to sin, and I sin. Oh, what a terrible Christian I am. But it's quite another thing to be able to say, God, I'm so thankful that I'm a child of the living God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you've adopted me. Thank you, God, that there's no condemnation. Thank you, God, that you've given me your spirit. The temptation do not cease. The temptations do not cease. We will face temptations every day of our lives. But what will not change is that Jesus Christ is victorious. Jesus Christ has been condemned. There is no condemnation. And what's even greater than that is that the Holy Spirit is in us, dwelling in the life of every Christian. So in all of our struggles, the power of the Holy Spirit confirms and affirms that we are His. You can't live a victorious life. Just telling yourself, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Only way to live a life that is honoring, glorifying to Christ is to live as sons of God. To live in the power of Christ and to live in the power of his Holy Spirit. That's it. I know. We're in a church environment where it's like, I have to give you, you know, very quick and easy three points, three takeaway points that you can, you know, just, uh, okay, check off. It doesn't happen that way. It just doesn't. True Christian life is grappling with these truths every moment of every day. Struggling through these truths. It happens when you decide that this is how you're going to choose to live. Let's pray. Father, not the not the devil, not our own sins not the powerful influences of this world can ever take away
what you have accomplished in your son, Jesus Christ. Nothing can ever undo what Jesus, your son, has done. Taking the punishment, the judgment, condemnation upon himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we can stand today as sons of God. Lord, I pray that this truth, with this truth in our hearts, in our souls, in our lives, our victory cry would be, thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's make this our prayer. Please remain standing for the benediction. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, and verses 10 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.